Welcome to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered and off-the-cuff theology podcast on the internet. I'm Nick. And I'm Thomas. And we are here today with an overflow episode for you. We had uh, something a little goofy pop up, and uh, we decided, because we had microphones and our stuff set up, that we wouldn't let this opportunity to go to waste. And plus, we haven't talked with each other for a while, so it's kind of a nice nice chance to get back in the saddle and chit-chat. So, how you doing, boo-boo? <laughs> oh, man, uh, doing pretty good. Life is definitely busy. Um, a lot going on in the church and personal life, but... Uh... It's a good night. The weather's been beautiful here in Indiana, a little bit cooler. Um, so doing pretty good. How about you? How, is, how are things? Oh, we're busy. We've got a kickoff Sunday coming up, which is basically when we redo or we resume fall programming, you know, for Bible ah. studies and all that fun stuff. You know, we've got three or four, actually about four or five studies that go, including one I'm teaching on finding Jesus in the Psalms, which is a, nice. little, more, a little more complex than that, but that's kind of the idea. Um. Basically talking about intertextuality, intertextuality, how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, and can the Psalms inform us how we read the New Testament, which I think is an interesting way of thinking. Mm, uh, I like it. And stuff like that. So just getting that all set up, we have a podcast uh, my church is putting out as a part of our ministry that I've been developing for about a year called the the Faith Without Fear podcast. Um, we haven't uh, – it might be on iTunes. We don't know. We, iTunes can usually take – for a new podcast, what, like three to five days to finally get it all up there and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So, but we're developing that, and we're looking forward to it. And uh, because you and I, I think you're at the office. Uh, I know I'm at the church office, which means no alcohol, despite what uh, you, I mean, if you look inside my desk, you may or may not find something there. But, you know, every pastor has that. But as for does your, us. <laughs> does, your, does your senior pastor listen to this podcast? Uh, I don't know. She might. <laughs> Guess we'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out. Uh, <laughs> but we are not that kind of Baptist, so it's entirely possible that, you know, who knows what you'll find in her desk. So, <laughs> nah, nah, it's it's one of those running jokes. It's, you know, because we're American Baptists and not Southern Baptists, we're not afraid of enjoying food and movies and dancing in public. And so, <laughs> I, like, and, I like the in public part of that. Yeah, the in public. You know, Southern Baptists do drink. They just hide it, you know, except in, when they go to conventions and stuff like that. That's when they get a little <laughs> rowdy. But, uh, yeah, so we've been developing that and all the fun stuff that comes along with being a, an associate pastor, trying to coordinate everything without losing your mind. So just the normal stuff. Yeah, uh, ministry life is certainly busy. I yeah. can attest to that. So you and I have both been through seminary, right? I went to Fuller. You went to Anderson School of Theology, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's correct. All right, and that's a Church of God, which is Wesleyan Arminian in Slant, right? Right. Okay, and I went to Fuller, which is interdenominational, meaning Presbyterians, Pentecostals, any and anyone else you can find that's within the broad stream of the Christian family, basically. And you well, and according, I, according oh, to according to you know the folks like um, John MacArthur, isn't it like a pretty liberal bastion? All you like Bible hating, disbelieving uh, Fuller folks? Yeah, we we just hate the Bible so much we study it intensely. That's just you know <laughs> we study it just we just study it because we don't love it. You, you know. <laughs> You guys were like the first seminary to like stop believing the Bible with the whole inerrancy thing. It's just you make Yeah, I know. We we made a big deal and we're still the whipping boy for uh, John MacArthur. Rest <laughs> his soul. So, which I still find funny. It's like he, you don't see him going after Princeton or other places that, you know, quote abandon the Bible, you know, but hey, to each his or her own, I guess. Wonder if proximity has anything to do with that. Uh perhaps. But uh anyway, so you and I've been to seminary, not everyone yes. has. And a question that 
I came out of seminary that I asked all my professors at some point, because uh, I, I studied New Testament, um, did every single class was essentially outside of spiritual formation classes was in New Testament studies. And that requires, of course, as you know, Greek and questions of history and all that sort of stuff. Did you have a specific emphasis in seminary or were you a little more uh, generalist? Uh, pretty general. So I was an MDiv. Okay. Um, so we had language, we had Old Testament, New Testament, theology, history, um, in addition to the practical stuff like spiritual formation and the unit of CPE. So um, a lot of stuff, but no, I did not have any particular emphasis. Gotcha. Okay. I was just curious. I actually, I'd never asked. So I was just curious. Yep. Um, but in those classes, you know, your intro to, it's intro to New Testament stuff, your um, intro to Old Testament, questions of Christian theology, all those sorts of things. You, you begin to learn something. And I don't know if this was true at Anderson. It was true at Fuller where they, they throw you in the, in the wood chipper, basically. It's like, here you go. Um, <laughs> here are the critical questions that everyone asks, right? It's not, yeah. and it's one of those things that, you know, for example, um, you and I can go anywhere with this, but we'll just use, because I'm a Paul guy, we'll just stick with a uh, pseudepigraphy just as kind of a, a central, uh, just kind of wait, an wait, easy way of talking. Wait, start with what? Like pseudo pig? What, what's a, what's a fake pig? Uh, it's a pig with an identity crisis. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, basically, the question of of Pauline authorship: Did Paul write the thirteen epistles that are attributed to him in the New Testament, or were some of them, many of them, or part of them written by someone claiming to be Paul who was not Paul? And uh, the question comes out. And th- for those who don't know, uh, there's the the quote genuine Paul, which is called in scholarship. That's Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Philippians, Philemon, First Thessalonians, and Galatians. I think that's the seven. And then you have the Deuteropauline corpus, which is um, Ephesians, Colossians, Second Thessalonians, and the pastoral epistles, 1, 2, Timothy, and Titus. And so in, in, we'll say in general critical scholarship, or even we'll say mainline, or and I don't use this pejoratively, but secular scholarship, there is that kind of divide. There's the seven Paul and then the six not Paul epistles. In evangelical scholarship, there's a tendency to take all 13 letters as Pauline, um, some for good reasons, some for bad, but those are the sort of questions that immediately get hit. You get hit with, uh, especially someone who's interested in pastoral ministry and being involved in a local church, but also learning these difficult questions and kind of the question you and I'll wrestle through today is, is preaching, you know, so you and I have our, our feet in the local church. We get behind a pulpit, you more than me, I'm an associate pastor, and we still have all this critical stuff we have had to and still have to wrestle with. And the question is, how does critical scholarship and preaching intersect? Because for me, I've been in churches where um, a pastor will say something just dismissively, you know, like, oh, uh, Paul didn't write Ephesians, but I'm going to preach on Ephesians anyway because it's in the Bible and right. or, or other stuff like that. So I don't know about your experience, uh, but that's been the experience I've seen. People either don't mention this at all from the pulpit, which, you know, there's a time and place for that. Or people basically delve into it head on and basically, well, Paul didn't write this and I think this is scripture, but there's no like explanation of it. So in generally thinking, right, so we'll use the pseudepigraphy hypothesis, right, the Deuteropauline hypothesis. Has that, like, how, how then do pastors, because every, every seminary deals with this, right? Uh, well, well, probably. <laughs> well, every seminary should deal with this question, yeah. right? And so... Uh, what was your experience uh, learning about this in seminary? Did you have a good experience, bad experience? Did it challenge you? Because it didn't. It wasn't. It was a challenge for me because I came into seminary thinking Paul only wrote the seven and not the six, and I came out of seminary basically. Well, I'll leave that. You know, I, I won't get too deep into that because that'll 
that'll be a, a part we talk about in a bit. But like, what sure. was your experience with that? Yeah, so actually, I came in without a whole lot of critical scholarship under my belt. Okay. Um, so it, it really was sort of a, a rude awakening to me to come in um, and, and learn lots of these uh, critical theories, um, uh, Pauline authorship, and perhaps some of our listeners right now, they're like, wait, what a second, uh, wait a second, are you telling me that some people think that Paul didn't, right? So if you're, if you're like sort of taken aback by that, that's sort of how I felt coming into seminary, like learning, mm-hmm. oh, there are smart people who think these things. Um, so it really was, it was kind of, kind of a rude awakening for me. Um, I was pretty uncomfortable, um, you know, for, for a while in, in some of those studies. And I was actually, you know, um, trying to make arguments for some of the, the traditional stuff, just cause that's what I had been taught. And that, you know, I sort of had this, I came in with sort of this bias against what I would have called, you know, like liberal, the scholarship, even though I learned that that's not, you know, uh, all liberal. So yeah, it was, a. It was a bit of a, an unpacking, unlearning process for me, and then relearning and critical thinking. Um, uh, so yeah, it was it was a, a bit of a shocker. Some of those some of those things, for sure. Yeah, and and it's something. Uh, I mean, and we want to make a distinction between authorship question. There's a difference, of course. Paul probably never technically wrote his epistles; he had scribes, and so avoiding the whole question of how we th- conceive of authorship, right? right how we conceive right. of that question. I, I prefer to say they're under Pauline authority because, you know, if he's dictating or what have you, then he's not technically the writer. But we'll, we'll say they fall under the approving eye of Paul's authority. I, I don't know. That's Maybe that's the correct way. And this sure. is to be, of course, distinguished between Old Testament questions of authorship, which relied far more on uh, oral tradition and the passing on of this stuff verbally, um, which gets into a, just a different question. You know, Old <laughs> Testament authorship is different from New Testament authorship uh, right. because Greco-Roman writings and all that sort of stuff is just different from stuff a thousand years ago. Right. Um, so we're not. I'm not going to delve into Old Testament stuff because I'm just simply not trained in, enough in Old Testament to be comfortable talking about it. But uh, that was something I had to really wrestle through. If I'm honest, when we did a, a study at a church we were attending while I was at Fuller, we did want we decided to do one on Ephesians. And at that point, I was actually not certain Paul wrote Ephesians. And so okay. for me, it was actually in that question of, should we actually do Ephesians at all? Right, right. You know, because I don't want to basically, one, I don't want to ruin someone's faith. You know? <laughs> sure. Because, you know, sure. I mean, for some people, if you just straight up say Paul didn't write Ephesians, that brings up a whole host of questions. And deservedly so, because not everyone knows. And people feel very strongly about stuff, rightly so. And you don't want to be a stumbling block and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Yeah, And so we had to basically, I had to argue with my wife because we co-led it, like good egalitarians. <laughs> and and uh, uh, we eventually, she convinced me we should do Ephesians, just set that question aside and we'll just do Ephesians. And after doing Ephesians, I was like, all right, this this feels very Pauline. Like this, mm-hmm. it, it, I think Paul probably did write Ephesians. Sure. Um, and so, and for me, the question, if one can be a quote evangelical, and by evangelical, I don't think of only Southern Baptists like Al Mohler, I think of mere evangelicalism, right? You know, neither liberal nor fundamentalist, right? Kind of the fuller model where the Nicene Creed and everything else is up for discussion, right? Yeah. So that sort of thing, just to avoid any other stuff like that. Um, sure, sure. Because I had New Testament professors that thought Paul wrote everything that attributed to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had a New Testament professor that waffled on the pastorals, you know, wasn't sure. Right. And so I don't know about you when when you're coming to the pulpit and you're preaching on 
because you've done stuff on women in ministry, and we know the one text that everyone loves is in the pastorals. Yeah. Did, did you think about that? Like, tell me about that, because that's got to be a bit of dissonance for you, because you're a scholar, you're a pastor, you're a thinker, and you want to be respectful of the local church where people are without, I hate the word, but I hate this phrase, but holding stuff back. You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. hiding, hiding stuff. Like, how, how did you wrestle with that? If you did at all, I don't know. Yeah, and probably still am to to certain uh, degree. So, I, I'm, you know, I, I still go back and forth on some of the stuff. On one hand, I think that um, the church has done sort of a bad job in general. Most churches have done sort of a bad job um, letting people know some of these other things, and and I think part of that contributes to why people go to college and lose their faith, right? Mm. Um, yeah. Because they grow up being taught a certain certain things about the Bible. Very, um, I want to be respectful in the way that I say this, but but certain fundamentalist things about the Bible and how the Bible works. And then they get to to college and they have you know an atheist professor who un, you know who debunks some of the things that they learned as a kid. Um, and so people end up walking away because they weren't given um, a solid enough intellectual foundation. Um, you know, and we actually saw that even at the Christian college and university that I went to, there was a lot mm-hmm. of this, like people would, people would go to Bible college and they would learn some of these critical theories. And it would, uh, for a lot of them, it would completely undermine their faith because it, um, it debunked some of the things that they were raised to believe about the Bible, even though these things were, were well-known in scholarship, they had never heard them before. Um, in church, and so they were they were then distrustful of everything they had learned. Uh, so on the one hand, I think churches need to do a better job introducing their people to some of these ideas um, and helping them think through them and work through them. Uh, but on the other hand, there's the temptation, right? You go to seminary and you come back, you start preaching to just teach, you know, uh, you know, make your church sort of like a mini seminary. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and unpack all of this stuff that that's not helping anybody follow Jesus in their daily life. It's just giving them this this fire hose of um, scholarly information. And so, I think the the balance has been, you know, I'm, I don't think I've struck it yet. Finding out how to do introduce and rely on the best of scholarship, but do so in a way that is accessible to people who don't have formal training in languages or don't have time to read 500 page books. Um, and I think that's a really difficult task. I think, hmm. you know, it's easy to err on, on one side or the other, but to, to preach in a way. And so all of this gets down to me. What is the fundamental goal of preaching? When, when we get up behind the pulpit or, um, you know, pulpit for sure, but even a Sunday school class, which can be a little bit different. What is it that we're trying to do? Hmm. Um, and I think that sort of needs to guide the approach. Uh, my answer to that, and it might be different for a person, my answer to that is, is to, to form Christ-likeness right, in the hearers, to, to hmm. help transform people into Christ-likeness. Um, but in order to do that, there are times when introducing critical scholarship is necessary. Um, so you asked about like the women in ministry passage, right? Because you, you have, on one hand, you've got a very flat reading of scripture that says, well, the, you know, the Bible says, uh, I do not permit women to teach, right? It's right there in black and white. And so for some people, it's that clear, that plain as day. Um, 
But for us, we say, well, there are things that you need to look at. There are there's the the context of the book as a whole. There's um, the historical context, the cultural context. All of these things fill in there. Um, so I think for me, one of the things I consider is: is this information necessary to achieve um, Christ-likeness? Hmm. Um, is so. Can I get by without it? Is it necessary? In other words, what is somebody going to do with this? Are they just going to feel smarter when they're done? Or is this necessary to help them understand the the meaning, the the implied, not the, um, you know, the authorial intent, the intended meaning right. of the text as it was written? And then how does that apply today? And so that's sort of my my litmus test. Is it is it necessary for forming Christ-likeness. Yeah, and, and not every... I mean, uh, talking about textual variants or something like that right, may not right. be the most helpful thing to do. But at the same time, for example, let's say uh, the two big textual variants, at least that I've preached on, uh, the Romans 5.1, the uh, let us Just have Just real quick, ex- yeah. explain textual variants for somebody who may not know. Sorry about that. Yeah, textual variants meaning when you have... Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, you have two early manuscripts uh, where, of, uh, of biblical data or biblical writings, uh, let's say um, papyrus or fragments or something like that, and they say different things. And so, for example, instead of saying state of the union and one manuscript, another manuscript from us around that time says state of the onion. That's a textual textual variant, you know, union and onion. You know, there's there's a difference there that would count as a textual variant, meaning you have to choose between which one, what what makes sense contextually, what makes sense uh, in terms of dating is one manuscript 500 years earlier, because in textual criticism, a basic principle is the earlier the manuscript, the better it is because it's closer to the source. Um, and all that sort of stuff. And so uh, you need to think about those sorts of things. And the question then becomes, do you preach these things? Right. You know, uh, for example, um, there's numerous textual variants in the New Testament or passages that are considered uh, interpolations or glosses, meaning something that was not originally in the epistle or the gospel that was added later. So, for example, think of the woman caught in adultery, quote that story in John's gospel from 752, 53 to 811. Uh, most manuscripts for that that contain that story are from several. They're much later. The, all, most of the early manuscripts don't even have that story, and a few early manuscripts have it jumping around John's Gospel, and I think a few even have it in Luke's Gospel. And so, the question that becomes it's a because it's a famous story. It's a well-known story. I mean, Mel Gibson has that story depicted in the Passion of the Christ. It's one of Jesus' most famous stories, and it was not, a, and it's probably not original to any of the Gospels. And so, the question that becomes. What? Oh my gosh. Uh, but then the question becomes, do you preach it? Do you actually preach that? And, you know, for example, there's other textual variants like, you know, the women being silent in the churches in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. I and others don't think those two verses were originally in the letter, although there is debate about it, which means, you know, do you preach on stuff, for example, just to get a, dig a little deeper, do you preach on stuff that may or may not, or probably is not, or are not, is not, are not, original to the epistle, right? And so that's a question, like for me, I preached on it in the sense of here's the critical issue, but I'm not going, in my mind, if it came to that section of John's gospel, I wouldn't preach it simply because I don't think it's original to John's gospel. And if I did, I would make sure to basically tell everyone this is not original to John's gospel, but it's probably a true story. So I can maybe preach on it in that way, but I couldn't preach on it as a integral part of the gospel of John. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Like, what are yeah. your thoughts on that? Like, would you actually preach on, what's it called, the pericope adultery or something like that? Although, <laughs> I don't think she's actually an adulteress. I think the whole thing is a little more complex than that. But You're uh, you're getting real deep real fast here. <laughs> well, I figured, you know, because people yeah. like when we go deep, so. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, I think if I were to preach on that, in, in a case like that, especially even most Bibles these days are going to have an asterisk. Um, if anybody has any kind of a study Bible or even just a regular Bible, I feel like a lot of Bibles these days say this is not included in many early manuscripts. Um, and so for that, if I was going to preach it, let's say I was you know preaching straight through John, um, I would I would couch that in this may not be um, probably isn't original to the Gospels added at some point. Um, just as a as a thing, because if not, you know, I think somebody's going to look down at their Bible, their study Bible, or they're going to Google. The thing is, it, it, we have to be so careful now. Is everybody that is in our audience has uh, in, unparalleled access to information, right? Everybody yeah. has a smartphone, and they can Google anything you say. Which you know that that leads to another thing. Uh, I, you just got to. I just have to be so much uh, more prepared now, careful about what I say, because anybody can fact check me on the spot, right? Yeah, um, they can call you out, well, call you out right after when you're getting coffee and donuts. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think uh, uh, in that particular case, I would say um, there's evidence that this particular passage is not in the earliest manuscripts, um, and so we need to be cautious about how we read it and apply it um, it, it may or may not be authentic to Jesus. And then just let people know that um, and, and help them, you know, and maybe that will then lead to, uh, you know, a meeting after church or a lunch or something where you can sort of sit down and, and explain in detail the process of, you know, um, textual criticism and talking about the different manuscripts and all of that. Um, but I think the fact that it's in most Bibles and people have access to Google, it, it's it's important to give them that information. That way they don't think that you're, withholding something from them right and i, I was told the story by uh john golden gay uh i was at oh where was it I, I forget where i was but him and i were talking john golden gay's uh he was my priest at fuller and he's also one of the foremost old testament scholars and he told this story i think in class uh, or it was i think i've heard it told to me and in a lecture uh he basically said um there's a small town in England, and they're talking, or it's just a nice little normal town, God-fearing town. Everyone's a Christian. They're all Church of England. They're all wonderful people. And then one day, they find out that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. You know, that's debated. But, you know, they find out, oh my gosh, Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. And riots break out, and everything just goes to, you know, uh, Hades in a handbasket. Everything just goes to town, right? And, you know, two people are watching, you know, what's going on, just kind of a, oh, that's interesting. And then the pre local priest walks up, the local vicar. And uh, he's he's like, what's what's going on? And they're like, well, we just found out Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. And he goes, oh, yeah, we learned that in seminary like 50 years ago. <laughs> and the people, of course, look at him and go, then why the hell didn't you tell us? You know, that was, that's kind of the punchline. Right. And I think there is a place to tell people. But like you said, it's one of those, does this foster spiritual formation? Or is this going to be stated in such a way that um, will be a cudgel to people rather than uh, a medicine? Right. Yes. And I, I, I know a lot of my friends from seminary and all that sort of stuff are very happy to tell people when someone says, you know, what Moses said in Genesis 5, and they'll, they'll interject. I've watched them. They'll interject. By, oh, Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. 
And it's one of those where it's like, okay, like you're basically scholar knobbing right now. You're kind of just showman. It's basically it turns out to be showmanship. Right. Um, or, or another example, I had a friend I was talking with, and I said, Paul says in the past, we're talking about Paul and women, right? And we're both egalitarian. Um, and I said, well, in the pastorals, you have this, and I think Paul says this, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, Paul didn't write the pastorals, so I don't have to worry about them. And my response was, well, a lot of people think you did, and the people that think you did think you're wrong about women in ministry. So you need to take this seriously, you know? And, yeah, right. And right. that doesn't mean he doesn't take them seriously, but in the sense of you need to take this as seriously as they do, and they're not going to accept that answer. Even if you're right, they're not going to accept that. And these are the people that you want to accept that. Um, and I've And so I've noticed a lot of, when it comes to pastoral stuff, a lot of people are very cavalier or almost kind of like there's a certain enjoyment of destroying sacred cows. Yes. And, yeah. And I don't know if you've experienced that. I, I know I've done that once or twice and I immediately felt guilty and made that right. But there is something to be said about like checking your, I don't want to say privilege, but checking yourself. And are you actually doing this for the right reason? Or are you trying to score points or are you doing this? Or You know what I mean? And I know, right. I think a lot of pastors really we're taught all this stuff. We assume it's common knowledge or we think other views are stupid or what have you. And then we go into our pulpits and we act like that. And there's right. something to be said about just basic humility um, <laughs> and knowing one, people disagree with you about whatever it is. Sure. But also I think recognizing that you have a position of authority of some authority in terms of speaking of teaching. And like you said, how will you cultivate spiritual formation through this right if your goal is to deconstruct people and let's face it you cannot deconstruct an entire room and hope that entire room has a healthy deconstruction sure um versus how do you build people up and i think that's a lot of that's a lingering question i think for a lot of pastors who actually care about the, the question of faithful preaching and faithful scholarship whatever that faithful scholarship looks like right uh richard hayes in his um excellent book the moral vision of the new testament has this line that um, has stuck with me ever since i since i've read it um it's sort of sort of my preaching mission statement he says the value of our exegesis and hermeneutics will be tested by their capacity to produce persons and communities whose character is commensurate with jesus christ and thereby pleasing to god Mm -hmm. um in other words, and I think we could we could throw preaching in there too, right? Because exegesis and hermeneutics all filter into preaching. The value of our preaching will be tested by its capacity to produce persons and communities whose character is commensurate with Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a part of that, I, I think we do, you know, there's, you know, to borrow um, our friend Dan Kent's expression, I think there are two ditches when it comes to preaching. On, on one ditch, we have, we never touch the critical scholarship. You know, we, we treat the Bible very flatly. We never talk about anything regarding the critical scholarship. And, and then we're giving people a very um, unstable foundation for their faith, which they go to college or they listen to an interview or a podcast, you know, with Bart Ehrman or something like that. And all of a sudden, everything comes crashing down because they've never heard this before. The other ditch, like you talked about, is where we're giving them all of this stuff. We're filling their heads with all of this knowledge that isn't doing anything to actually produce Christ-like character in them. And we're either showing off for ourselves or we're just making ourselves look smart or we're making our audience feel smart. But we're not giving them anything um, positive. We're not forming character and Christ-likeness in them. And so I think there's this, this this middle road where we can and should 
do both. Give people um, a version of faith that is intellectually defensible in the public square. Because I, I think it is, right? I, I think yeah. we can defend, we can, uh, I think, what we believe is intellectually defensible, and, and it holds up. Um, I was recently on a, on a podcast with, a, with an atheist friend of mine, and he was, he was challenging me on some of that popular stuff. Um, and so I think we need to give people some, some handles so that if they hear some of these, you know, popular atheists debunking these claims that we all know aren't true, but we're not telling our people, we're not giving them tools to, to deal with that. We're doing them a disservice that way as well. Um, mm. So, so walking that middle road of um, enough, enough substance, enough scholarship to, to give them the tools they need if, if they're challenged, if they're questioned, but not so much that it's, it's mere knowledge, mere information um, and falling short of actual discipleship. Yeah, and and there and there is the additional problem of we'll say fire hosing people, right? Of of people feeling dumb and discouraged. Yes, like I mean, if you go up to someone like, and I've I've seen this happen, like this happened right in front of me. And I want to reach over and smack my seminary friend. We were talking with someone. I think it was about women in ministry, and the guy was talking about you know like the pastorals, right? Because that's the text, right? And my friend basically said, Paul didn't write the pastorals, and I don't care who did. Yeah, And my friend, one, had this look of, like, one, he's been condescended to, and two, he has no idea how to have the conversation with someone who's willing to slap him with something like that. Right. And it's one of those where if you're unable to form uh, or cultivate something that is both you're, – if you're unable to cultivate curiosity and also a healthy sense of uh, intellectual pursuits and formation, then – you you really run the risk of being a jerk. It, it, it's it's like you're you're forcing deconstruction on people, and that's yeah. not in my mind what preaching is for. Preaching in my mind, I mean, at least not as a primary thing. I don't set out when I get behind the pulpit to deconstruct someone's faith or a theological point. My point is formation, not deconstruction. And formation can have a deconstructive element, right? Right. Um, hopefully, you know, my theolo uh, theological preaching cultivates positive stuff by helping us let go of negative stuff in me and in my, my uh, church family. But the goal isn't to get up there and basically go, I don't know, we don't know who wrote the Gospels and all this sort of stuff. And no one cares and it's a stupid question and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, that just doesn't help anyone. Sure, sure. And it doesn't help people think better either. Right. Yeah. I, I think there can be a time for intentional deconstruction but again it would be to you know to what purpose so for example right i'm going through um revelation right now in my church um and there's a lot of really bad stuff out there about revelation right um you think of the whole like left behind series which is what a lot of people have in mind when they think about revelation mm -hmm. um and so in order to help people grasp the true message of revelation the true relevance of it I, I do sort of have to deconstruct a little bit the the popular vision they've been given but the purpose and i think this is where motivation and intent comes in the purpose is not to say oh look how smart i am look how wrong you are but to say hey this you know here's here's why this matters here's why i'm taking something that maybe you thought was true why i'm telling you that it's not it matters for this particular reason in our discipleship and following Jesus. Um, and from the pulpit, I, you know, sometimes we have to do that, right? Because we're gonna we're gonna be engaging people who've been given flimsy foundations, and we will have to challenge that. But but are we doing so, you know, in a spirit of charity? Are we doing so, 
gently enough? Are we doing so um, for the purpose of constructing a Christ-like character, or are we just trying to you know show people how smart we are? And I think I think motivation matters a lot, and I think motivation will come out in the way that we preach. Exactly, and and I think there's something also to be said about um, respecting where people are. Like, if someone needs to believe, for example, that I don't know that. I'm trying to think of something like that. The earth is 6,000 years old. And if they don't believe that or they have that taken away, then they will enter a severe deconstruction stage that is going to be unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And so in in my mind, it would be, I mean, unchristlike to basically go, I'm going to kick out your foundation. So you at least agree with me on this theological and scientific point. Right. And it's one of those recognizing where people are and what people need, which I think is just baseline pastoral ministry is recognizing where people are, but also what they need. Yeah. Some people may not be able to handle the, you know, reading Revelation through first century eyes because they've grown up with a vision of, of left behind and dispensationalism and, you know, f- helicopters and all these sorts of things, <laughs> you know. And and if you take that away, then they they're just not ready for it. And to basically rip the covers out, you know, rip the, the rip the, the foundation off of what they believe without being willing to go through the muck and the mire of trying to form it, you know, form Christian character right. again, just, I don't know. It's, it's one of those where I, I just like, I don't know. I think a lot of preachers basically jump into the I deconstructed so easily in a community of academia right. um, without recognizing that a lot of people don't have the, the privilege to go right. through that sort of contained reconstruction or deconstruction and reconstruction. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, and I think recognizing that is would go a long way for a lot of preachers. And I'm not saying every preacher. I'm not saying I haven't done that either. It's sure. just something I've noticed. Sure. Um, yeah, it, it, it just probably depends on you know where you go to seminary and all that because uh, there's there's this chasm, there's this gap between I think the local church and the academy. Um, and there's this distrust almost um, between each institution, right? A lot of times, local churches they distrust seminaries, right? They call them cemeteries, mm-hmm. where your faith goes to die. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I and heard then, that all the time. Yeah, and so you have this disdain for the seminary in the local church, but then you get to the seminary, and and sometimes you have these academics, these scholars who have sort of a disdain, and they look down on the local church. Um, and actually, that's one of the things when we started this podcast that we talked about is, is we want to be a place where people can sort of, where we can help bridge that gap, help introduce people to some of these concepts and why they matter. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, and I think that whole, this whole project that we're doing, um, the, this Christ centered theological framework, I think can help shape our approach to preaching as well. Um, you know, why, you know, if I feel the need to deconstruct somebody's young earth creationism um, why is that going to help them be more Christ-like you know if somebody believes that they're welcome to believe that you know and that's that is an interpretation of scripture and it doesn't it doesn't really affect Christ-likeness unless they say you can only be a Christian if you believe this right then maybe right. we step in and say well you know what there are other valid interpretations um, and this is not central to what it means to be a Christian, um, and I think we need to remember that as well. That that people can believe things that aren't central to Christianity, um, and, and we don't have to we don't have to make people right on every account. That's not our goal. Our goal is to form right. them into Christ likeness. 
Like I know this may be shocking for some people, but I think Calvinists are going to heaven. Uh, what? <laughs> I, I know. Oh my gosh! Like, and it's one of those. Most of my professors at Fuller were in the Reformed tradition, and I learned a lot, and it was great. And By heaven, those, you mean the the New Jerusalem on Earth, right? Yeah. The, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, an example of what not to do, folks. Yeah. But uh, there's something to be said about being wrong is not the same as being sinful or stupid. Right or right. whatever wrong it's okay to be wrong and be a christian um there are very few things i think you're allowed to get wrong and be a christian basically if you're outside in the nicene creed you have a lot of room outside of the nicene creed if anyone catches what i'm saying um and even then there's elements of the nicene creed i think could have been worded better but anyway <laughs> um, but the but the point being i think is is um if some of the most christ-like people i know are young earth creation creationists for example and I am most decidedly not one, um, mm-hmm. just for exegetical, theological, scientific, historical, all those sorts of reasons. Right. Um, but I believe my parents, who are young earth creationists, are very loving, very Christ-like, and very kind. Yep. Um, you wouldn't know that you know you wouldn't know they're young earth creationists by talking to them, but you know they love Jesus and they care about you know following Jesus and instilling values in people, even if there's agreement or agree to disagree or even disagreeable elements of theology. And it's one of those where people are allowed to be wrong, and that includes me. Right. And I I think there's something to be said, too, of when I preach about something very passionately, I'm not saying other people that disagree are stupid or wrong. I'm just saying I feel very strongly that this is right. And my saying I'm right is not an exclusion of someone from the kingdom. Sure. And I think a lot of people... And I think that applies across the board to any theological topic or theological tradition within the Christian family. Um. And it's something to be said, too, as you mentioned, um, if someone affirms certain views that I find objectionable or theologically what have you, that's okay. Like, at the end of the day, it's okay to be wrong theologically. Right. You know? Right. Like, we have Reformed folks that follow us on Twitter that I know for a fact if we sat down and argued, we'd probably come to blows. You know? <laughs> but even even if we'd get there... Um, they have a, a right to their, and this is my Baptist, you know, freedom of thought idea coming out. Sorry about that, everyone. But people are allowed to believe what they want to believe, and that includes our Reformed complementarian brothers and sisters. We're just allowed to say they're wrong, and they're allowed to take that. Um, but I think at the end of the day, if we're not preaching to cultivate um, Christ-like relationality, then I don't know what the purpose of preaching is. Exactly. Um, and it's remembering that uh, we are we're not saved by our theology right we're not when we get to the, our, our entrance into heaven or the new Jerusalem or new creation or however you you believe whatever you believe the the eschaton to be we're not going to sit down and take a theology test uh, well we will but we will lose because the theology test will basically turn to look at us and be like well you believed in me and that's good enough, but you know, <laughs> right? Um, I remember years ago, and I don't have the exact quote um, in front of me, but uh, John Wesley was was writing a letter to somebody, and I believe it was actually on the topic of Calvinism and predestination. Um, but what he said was to this to this person: he says, "Remember, as sure as you are about X, whatever X was," he said. Others, wise and holy men too, are equally sure that why, 
and you are as much obliged to bear with them as they are to bear with you. Um, and that quote is just, uh, and I, I don't always live that out as best as I can. Uh, <laughs> um, you follow me on Twitter, you probably know that. Um, but I love the, the sentiment there that we may be absolutely sure about something, that there are other people whose lives demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, right? Who are mm-hmm. equally convinced of the opposite. Um, you know, and so this whole idea of coming down to, okay, well, well what actually matters in the end? I mean, which is where I think, again, motivation, motivation really comes in. Um, it becomes very important. Why are we, why am I preaching what I'm preaching? Why am I saying what I'm saying? What is the, what is the Christ-like goal that I hope to instill in this particular message? And yeah, it's ultimately, I mean, one, the, uh, uh, just a heads up for people. <laughs> uh, I turned in the final, well, I'm waiting for the final proofs of the book on entire sanctification, but that whole process is basically out of my hands now. But in, in reading, rereading what I wrote for that book, my first thought was, I hope at the end of the day, this isn't an exercise in scholarship, but an exercise in worship. Mm-hmm. And if some, and if someone, and I, I think I actually say something like this in the book, I don't remember where, but if I can't give this to a preacher friend of mine, and he or she can't preach this, I, I will have wasted my time. You know what I mean? Yep. If I can't give this to, I don't know, Tara Beth Leach or Thomas Horrocks or someone else, and they can't read it and be like, you know, this brings glory to God. I think this would be a great message to preach. Yeah. And it's also academically defensible, but pastorally sensitive. Um, then I feel I'll have wasted my time. if I, if I I It's unable to achieve that. And so for my mind, preaching and scholarship are tied together as an act of worship and it's really hard to worship God and lead people into worship of God as a pastor if you don't actually like want them to worship with you in spirit and truth, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you're unwilling or unable to do that, then you've really missed the mark in my mind of what it means to be a pastor. And that is, as you've mentioned over and over, and I think is right, is forming Christ in them so that yes. they will worship God well, worship God with passion, with their lives, and not worrying at the end of the day who wrote Ephesians. Right. It's a question worth pursuing and it's a question right. that should be settled on, but if that question is not motivated by a worship of God and a love of neighbor, then it's an exercise in narcissism. Mm. And that applies to oh. me as someone who wants to dedicate his life to scholarship. Sure. And sure. all that sort of stuff. And that's I think a, a healthy reminder for us who are more academically minded to remember if this won't be can't be preached in the local church, you're wasting your time and you're yeah. doing it wrong. Yeah. And, and that there are ways to preach this stuff. One of the things I remember thinking in seminary, sitting through some of these classes, is, okay, I don't know if I'll ever be able to preach this, but it will keep me... Like, I think half of the value of what we learn is what it keeps us from saying, right? Mm. It, it prevents us from saying dumb stuff um, right. that's easily discreditable. Um, you know, so it, there's just certain things that, based on what I've learned, that I don't say that nobody ever needs to know. But I, I don't say things that would bring um, intellectual discredit uh, to the faith. Right, that makes sense. It's like the it's like the problem of of quote Judaism in the New Testament, right? With how some of the authors we perceive the authors speaking about Jews, right? right? John and the Jews, the Jews this, the Jews that, and of course, in light of the Holocaust, you and I both know that we had to take a really good hard look at the New Testament and Judaism. 
um, especially in light of Hitler and anti-Semitism and all these sorts of things, right? right? And that forced us to be careful about how we preach and also how we teach because you can't get up in the pulpit now and say the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. Right. Um, it, 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 you shouldn't, but also you can't because we just know so much more about Judaism. And that scholarship helps us reconfigure how we talk about it. Jews weren't legalists any more than Christians are legalists, which means you have legalists everywhere, but it's not a right. religion of legalism or religion of, quote, works. E.P. Sanders and others have demonstrated that. Right. Um, and N.T. Wright and Jimmy Dunn. But it means we, we become more sensitive preachers to issues raised by the scriptures we're studying. Exactly. And, and, and we, it means also that we, we take these scriptures so seriously that they actually impact our daily lives. Right. You can't get up and say, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, in John's gospel without remembering all the stuff that has happened. Correct. And also, of course, if you bring Paul into it, you think about Paul's view of Israel and his, you know, hope for their salvation because they're his people in Romans 11 and stuff like that. And that should give us, a, at the end of the day, a sensitivity towards issues that are raised just in daily life. And that's a part of critical scholarship that can help preachers be more sensitive exactly. toward these issues without... Uh, I mean, so for example, if if we get up there and we say the Jews believed in in works, but Christians believe in in faith, <laughs> we're one perpetuating a stereotype that is false and also harmful. But two, we're just doing really bad scholarship, and we're not forming people to have a better view of Second Temple Judaism and modern Judaism. And not only that, we we forget that Paul was a Jew, that John was probably a Jew. Right. You know, right. and that these are, it's like if you read the, the prophets are not anti-Semitic because, or anything like that, but they're critical. Critical yeah. is not the same and all this sort of stuff. And that helps us reconfigure how we talk about it while remaining academically coherent and honest, right. but right. preaching better because we're not throwing everyone that isn't a Protestant or a very narrow stream of Protestantism under the bus, which is itself a way of being a more faithful expositor of God's holy word. And that's right. at the end of the day, if you believe this is, Whole, scripture is holy and inspired and all that sort of stuff, and you take it seriously, you have to look at these sorts of issues and wrestle with them, not only for yourself, but also for your, your church. Right. As an act of worship. Yeah. It, it, and it, it, it comes down to, you know, I think you talk about pastorally sensitive, and I think it challenges us to really examine ourselves and what we think about the people that we preach to, right? Mm. Um, do I... Do I think that they are idiots? And that's a terrible word. But do I think that they're um, do I think that they're incapable of grasping difficult mm. topics? Right? Do I do I look down on them as though they're you know dumb sheeple? <laughs> um, but on on the other side, do I recognize that not everybody um, has the time or the capacity to to digest? some of this higher, and I, I even hate higher level, but some of the more complex um, thought. Like we have lots of people in our congregations. Are we giving everybody something that they can do? Some of the people that we preach to love the, the depth. They love the complexity. They love the scholarship. Others just want to, you know, they, they just need something to, to help them practically get through the week and trust that God is good. <laughs> they need a um, word. They need a word to live on, to yeah, feed on. Yeah. Um, and so are we, in our preaching, are we giving something to everybody? Um, but, but also, and, and here's where I think I'm going to give some props to our, to our Calvinist brothers and sisters. 
I think that they assume that all of their people can handle meat. Mm. <laughs> um, I think that's they, actually very fair. Yeah, I, you know they they preach strong doctrine and they just assume that their people can handle it. Whereas I think sometimes in some of these other traditions, we have a tendency to think that um, you know our people can't handle this and so we're not going to give it to them and i think we can actually learn from our from our calvinist brothers and sisters that way they don't they don't hold back they they have a trust that their people can handle the the meat of the word right and, and the reformed tradition does place a very high um emphasis on education right. like i i asked people uh do you, do you think a pastor should have to should have seminary training should that be a requirement and most of my reformed professors that i talked to said yes that doesn't mean um, you can't be a seminary student and be a pastor or want to go to seminary and be a pastor. Uh, but for, the, for them in the PCUSA, um, on the more conservative side, I guess, of the PCUSA, they basically said, yes, you must be educated before you open your mouth about God's holy word. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them on everything. doesn't mean you have to be an expert, but you have to know what you're saying and make sure it's intellectually respectable and coherent and accurate before you say anything. And um, in my in the Baptist tradition across the spectrum, generally an MDiv or a master's degree or seminary is preferred. But if you go to a lot of non-denominational, which is code for basically Baptist light churches <laughs> in, in Southern California, um, most of the pastors are not educated in term, and I mean educated in the sense of having gone to Bible college or uh, undergrad and seminary. Right. Uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because a lot of people can just get hit with the spirit and they can preach and just wind them up and get out of the way, you know. Yep. Um, but there is something to be said, too, about going through the the rigor and the fire of, of, of education to test what you've been taught. Right. Um, and inherited in the church if your church is, you know, preaching stuff like this. Yeah. I, I'm so torn on that question on, on one Me hand. Too. I, I think, <laughs> Me too. Me too. Um because my, my tradition, you don't have to go to seminary. We, we have a, uh, a leadership track um, if you want to become ordained. And it doesn't require uh, formal seminary or even Bible college education. And on one hand, I love that because there are people who are called, who are gifted, who can do different things. Um, but on the other hand, like I know how valuable seminary was for me. And I know just the culture. Um, that, that giving people an intellectually defensible version of their faith, especially young people, is so critical mm. uh, because there are so many people now who are, you know, the, the amount of people who walk away from faith in college because it's debunked academically or intellectually is pretty staggering. Mm. Um, and that, we, you know, we could have a whole episode talking about that. Um, uh, so... Yeah, I'm really torn on that question. On one hand, I'm like, you know what? No, uh, you know, James and Peter and John were unlearned and ignorant men. Am I right? Um, but they also walked with Jesus himself for three years. <laughs> yeah, um, it's one know, of those. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 for me, it's it's. A, I'd give preference to, but I wouldn't exclude anyone on the just simply on the basis of not having an MDev or a right. master's degree. Especially but, because that's so. You know, there, there's a classist element to that, right? Mm -hmm, like some exactly. of these people. Uh, you know, if if we had free seminary, right? If we could afford to send everybody there, and people could afford to live for three years while they studied, but are we are we preventing somebody from ministry simply because of their socioeconomic status? And I think that's exactly. something that we need to take seriously. No, absolutely. And there's something to be said too of of 
of, uh, of, of podcasts like ours attempting to be not, a, a, of course, a substitute for that, sure. but also a way for people to dive in to, to maybe people who don't know or haven't considered it or feeling like called a ministry. I mean, I've had numerous uh, friends reach out and say they're now considering seminary, uh, particularly a, a friend of mine, she's in, uh, I want to say, in the South, who had always stifled her call to ministry because of culture and stuff like that, but is now thinking about pursuing pastoral and church planting stuff. Right. And uh, there, there is something to be said about um, taking what you've been gifted with and using it for others, which, of course, which as a sermon, a sermon is. You, you do the work. You look at it. You, if you're me, you translate it. I, I don't know about you. I translate everything I preach just so I, I know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Not that It's not because I have that kind of time, but it's because I'm that you know, that nerdy. Um, but there is something to be said about recognizing what you're doing as a preacher, as a academic, and also as a podcaster, as you and I are being in a place where we can help others without being self-serving or deconstructive. As we said, a positive vision for Christian theology and a Christian discipleship. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something to be said about that. Oh, absolutely. Um, in recognizing that there, there's there's a value in both of these worlds, um, mm-hmm. right? The challenging the notion in the church that education is is wasteful or destructive, but also challenging the the position in a lot of these you know scholarly areas that like there's something to be said, right? Some I forget who said it, um, some famous preacher, something you know. Uh, I have a quote somewhere, you know, basically some. You know, some old grandma can love Jesus better than some well-trained theologian. I'm butchering that quote. I forget who said it. Um, but that some of these people, right, who who don't know Greek, who don't know anything about pseudepigrapha or whatever, you know, that stuff is, or who don't pigs know anything with, about... Pigs with, you know, identity crisis. Yeah. 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 But my God, do they have the fruit of the Spirit in spades, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, do they pray with fervor? Do they love Jesus with all of their heart? Uh, recognizing that that is at least as much value as you know all of this stuff and, and, and again both we're, we're called to love god with our whole heart soul mind and strength and so we need all of that i, I think the the academic stuff it helps us love god with our mind there are there are people who who love the the intellectual pursuit and that honors god and there are other people who you know they're just you know they're more primary heart and that honors God, right? And there's some people, um, they just, they want to serve, they want to give and that honors God and recognizing that, you know, it's almost like Paul talked about there are different gifts in one body, <laughs> different functions <laughs> in one body and we need all of them. And I think if we can recognize the value of, you know, the church and what it does and the value of the academy and what it does and both are are necessary and both are good and they can come together to form a, a holistic vision of of discipleship that does help us love God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and with our strength. Amen. And I just think with, it's one of those, if you're teaching a New Testament class, like my future goal is to be a New Testament guy, the last five minutes of the class, I plan on looking at every single student being like, now how do you preach this? Mm. How would you preach this? Yeah. It, you know, even if you're not a pastor, you have no interest in being in pastoral ministry. How would you counsel someone? How would you preach it? How would you encourage someone? How does this help you be a better person for others? Not yeah. as some like you know totalizing authoritarian figure, but as someone who has the gifts to be seated here to help others who have gifts that maybe they don't know about. 
Well, I think uh, I think maybe we should qu- close with this quote from Richard Hayes one more time, just because I think it's so good. Hit me, Daddy. Uh, the The value of our exegesis and hermeneutics, and we'll add preaching into that, will be tested by their capacity to produce persons and communities whose character is commensurate with Jesus Christ and thereby pleasing to God. Um, so wherever you are on this spectrum, whether you are you dive deep into the theology, whether you uh, are just getting into this to the first time and we've introduced you to lots of concepts and words you didn't know. And by the way, if, if we introduce something to you that like rocked your world, please reach out to us um, on Facebook or Twitter or email or something and let us know because we... Like we said, we don't want to disc- we don't want to um, throw anybody here into uh, deconstruction without walking with you. So if we said something that was like, "What? I didn't know that." Uh, please reach out to us, and, and and we'll be happy to walk with you um, and help explain where we're coming from. Because our goal with this podcast, as it has been from the beginning, is to uh, help create a positive vision for Christian discipleship, um, not just show off how how learned we are from our seminary uh, edumacations. Um, so, so please, if there's something that, that we said that uh, rubbed you the wrong way or you didn't know about, um, we'd be happy to walk with you through that. We want to help um, all of us, ourselves included, become more Christ-like uh, to, to love God and to love others to the best of our ability. There's still plenty to learn in the world, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and all of the learning in the world isn't, isn't going to please, please God if it doesn't translate into love for God and love for people, not just knowledge about God and knowledge about people. Um, Amen. So this has been an unusual episode of the Synergist podcast, a little bit more off the cuff, uh, less prepared, but we thought you might want to hear a little bit about our our approach to, to preaching and, and exegesis. Uh, please reach out to us. Once again, uh, just huge thank you to our patrons um, who faithfully support us. We know that things have been busy. We haven't produced as much content as we would like, but we hope that what we are putting out is helpful, um, and we're just so grateful for your continued support um, once again, uh, it's just it's a, it really is a privilege to be able to do this and know that people actually listen and, and care about our ideas. Um, and for you patrons that you that you support, what we're doing enough to to support us financially. Um, we really do appreciate that uh, very very deeply. Uh, so this has been another episode of the Synergist, the most man centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. We love you. <laughs>